Hello there, podcast listener. Amber Noel here. It's my turn to be a listener now. I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. The Living Church, as you might know, is a nonprofit communications ministry with a heart for Christian unity, especially in the Anglican communion. And we want to keep our mission sharp in all we do, including the podcast, and have fun, obviously. But would you write to me and let me know how we're doing? What's the podcast doing for you? Is it making a difference in your thinking, your ministry, your prayer life, your daily walk with your golden doodle? Do you have some hot takes on what we could do better? I want to hear it all. I might even read your comments on the next episode. There are so many great podcasts out there. I want to do more of what The Living Church is here to do and less of what it's not. So there are two things you can do to help. First, make sure you're following us from a podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Find us on the page and click follow. The second thing you can do is email me, ambernoel at livingchurch.org. Share with me a thing or two you've gotten from the podcast over the years. And if you want, include something we might do better. Help us stay not just a great podcast, but on mission. Follow us, email me, A-M-B-E-R-N-O-E-L at livingchurch.org. I can't wait to hear from you. The Living Church, Catholic, Evangelical, Ecumenical. Thanks for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast. I'm Amber Noel, your host. Welcome to the new bi-weekly format. We have loved seeing all our new listeners enjoying our last two episodes, which were a two-part conversation between former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, and Pulitzer Prize-winning author Marilyn Robinson. If you missed it, we invite you to go back and find it. It's perfect for a couple of walks or a couple of dishwashing sessions, or don't multitask at all. Just sit down and have a listen. This week, we continue our series on multicultural Anglicanism. What does it look like? What are some of its treasures and struggles? What does it mean to have a strong sense of ethnic or racial identity and also to be an Anglican? I had the joy of speaking with the Reverend Canon Anthony Guillen. He is the Director of Ethnic Ministries and Missioner for Latino and Hispanic Ministries for the Episcopal Church. His ministry oversight also includes Asia America, Black, and Indigenous ministries. And we talked about his own journey into becoming an Episcopalian as a Mexican-American, as well as his journey into owning his own Mexican identity as he was approaching a call to ministry in the Episcopal Church. He told me some powerful stories from parish ministry, showing why Latinos become attracted to Anglican worship and why they might really feel at home, really feel a deep connection. We also talked about the tensions Latinos can face, especially in white majority congregations. We talked about family, food, and why Latino Hispanic ministries might be better at using Zoom than the rest of us combined. We want to thank Canon Anthony and the Department of Ethnic Ministries for this conversation. How are things going? 
Thank you. Um, I'm, things are well. I just finished a full day of, um, we have a five-day intensive online Latino ministry course called VELMC, Virtual Episcopal Latino Ministry Competency Course. And um, we started today and it ends Friday afternoon. Um, so a little tired. It was, you know, I, I did one presentation, but I was on, you know, the entire day. And we just finished our staff meeting to um, evaluate how the day had gone. So very good. Good. Excellent. Well, I I had a birthday this weekend, which was um, just a party for three days. So I'm a little tired as well. So it was my birthday on Sunday and my best friend oh, is... Thank you. Thank you. So on a scale from one to 10, how much uh, does your conference that you're a part of compare to a birthday party? <laughs> I, I, I don't think they compare in those ways. Um, but, but, you know, there's, there's great satisfaction. Canon Anthony Guillen, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. It's my pleasure to be here. I, I hear that you're doing well, that you're that you're finishing out this conference. Um, can you just tell me briefly, um, how's coronavirus, the pandemic, treating you these days? Um, and what's something that's been encouraging to you? Well, the um, pandemic obviously um, uh, has affected all of us at the church center and in the church. I mean, just, um, but it's given, um, it's been a great opportunity to, um, in some ways to be creative and in other ways um, to be a part of the, be a part of the, uh, the leadership of the church that is kind of leading in a new way. Um, I've been an early adapter in technology and the use of digital resources for for a long time. <laughs> um, I started in my position 15 years ago. And um, one of those things that was really important for me was a way for me, my office at the time was in New York City, a some sort of a digital resource that would enable us to see one another and be able to talk and catch up at the end of the day. And um, I got onto Skype when Skype was just beginning. This was in 2005. And I quickly began to realize how valuable that tool could be in ministry because so many of the people that I was dealing with were isolated. Clergy in the U.S. who um, were perhaps in some places, in some places, the diocese was the entire state and there was one, you know, Latino priest in the state of, you know, of um, uh, Nebraska, say, or, 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 you know, things like that. And, and in Latin America, you know, where distance separated people, you know, where travel might've been a day's travel from one part of the diocese to another, and people were feeling isolated and I was communicating with people and it was like, how can we do formation and networking and mutual support with people who feel alone and who are alone in a way? 
So um, digital, res- uh, digital resources were a way to do that. And with the pandemic, so going back to your question, uh, with the pandemic, the Office of Latino Hispanic Ministries has been able has been a resource for churches and groups across the church um, in terms of training, um, giving tips, um, helping people figure out how to do worship and or meetings or and or conferences online. We had a major conference in May. Um, which was scheduled, it's called Nuevo Amanecer, which means New Dawn. And now we had to do an online version of it. So um, we got to work and I think created a very successful uh, program. We learned a lot in the process of both planning it and doing it. And subsequently, we have helped many other dioceses and organizations conduct online conferences and webinars um, because of what what we were able to do, so so I think the 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 um, the pandemic, the coronavirus um, crisis, has helped us to be leaders in a new way. That's so interesting. It's almost as if your ministry is still doing and attempting to do the things that it was doing before, but then you've also become this kind of consulting ministry. Now, I would like to move back in time a little bit. If we could do some time travel with you. We have an ongoing series on the podcast exploring the idea of multicultural Anglicanism. And this was sparked by an interview with Esau Macaulay that we did back in the spring, which people can read on our Covenant blog. And the basic idea is, is Anglicanism at heart an expression of Christianity that is truly for everyone? So are we, yes, nuanced, yes, complex, but basically white in tradition? And in the U.S., this seems to be more of a pertinent question since Anglicanism is really thriving uh, many places in the global South. But if Anglicanism is for everyone, then what does this look like? And I want to ask that question of you, Anthony, from a few different angles um, in your position in the heart of Latino ministry, Latino-Hispanic ministry in the Episcopal Church. So here's here's where we're going to time travel a little bit. Um, Anthony, what is your cultural identity and how did you come to call the Episcopal Church your home for worship and ministry? Are you a cradle Episcopalian? I uh, was brought up as a Roman Catholic and I was very active as a young man in the Roman Catholic Church, but um, also had a very... Um, in my prayer life and in my devotion and in worship and just sort of being a part of the church, um, I had a lot of questions. I was, you know, I was, I was a teenager during Second Vatican Council, and there were a lot of changes that took place. And those questions and the changes that were taking place made me or made, sort of gave me the, the uh, permission to raise my own questions. Um, So I was in search of a church. I left the Roman church when I was 17. I was in search of a church that did not exclude people. I grew up in in Texas. 
Um, in, in Texas, uh, we had sort of two basic religious groups, Catholics and Baptists, Southern Baptists. That's right. That's right. Um, Don't forget the right. Southern part. That's right. The Southern Baptists, right. <laughs> so we had those two, I mean, those were the two biggest groups. I mean, you know, there were a lot of other folks, but those were the two main groups. And, um, and my neighbors were Southern Baptists. And in the Roman church, you know, this was, you know, before and during Vatican II. And um, there was this, what I was taught was that, and what uh, the nuns taught us in catechism, was that anyone who was not a Catholic was going to go to hell. And um, I argued with nuns and priests, mostly nuns, uh, for several years because I, I couldn't, I didn't understand a God that would be that way. I didn't understand why if these people, you know, I mean, I went to their church and, you know, they sang songs about Jesus and they prayed and they lived good Christian lives. And I didn't feel like I had any, I didn't have an edge over them. On the other hand, my Southern Baptist friends, of course, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, I, I needed to be rebaptized <laughs> uh, because my, my infant baptism didn't count. And so that didn't make any sense either. <laughs> So I kept thinking, you know, either God, you've, 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 you know, you've, um, um, you're really playing, you know, a trick on me, or there must be something out there that, that goes along with my thinking. And the first Sunday I went to an Episcopal church, I knew that I'd found my home. Now you've been an Episcopalian or you've been in an Episcopal context for some time. Um, you are, uh, you're a priest, you're a canon, um, you've been in ministry for some time. And I'm wondering what you have seen. What are some fruitful overlaps between being Latino and being Episcopalian? So what are the overlaps uh, culturally or in a mindset between being Latino and Episcopal church life and Anglican worship? How do those identities flow together really well or really naturally? That's a great question. I love the way you posed that to me in the 80s um, when Mexico was still a part of the Episcopal Church. I went there as a missionary from the Diocese of Texas, and I spent four years there. Having denied my um, Latino-ness half of my life, um, I, uh, I grew up ashamed of being a Mexican-American. I didn't like the color of my skin. Um, and, um, um, I wanted to be part of the, you know, I wanted, I wanted to be white so I could be more accepted. <laughs> I grew up in a very segregated, um, um, racist, um, uh, community. Uh, and I went to Mexico. I mean, it was just by the grace of God and all sorts of things that, that, that happened, but suddenly I'm 31 or 32 and I'm, I find myself in Guadalajara, Mexico, um, serving as the diocesan youth minister with a baby's Spanish <laughs> and um, was embraced and welcomed and made to feel at home and um, was given opportunities for ministry. I went there as a lay person. Uh, I went to seminary while there. I was ordained while there. I planted some churches. But I learned about sort of Episcopal spirituality in Mexico. 
um, from those who I was ministering with, many of whom were lifelong Episcopalians or who had found the Episcopal Church and who had embraced it and, and you know, got to hear their stories and what it was that attracted them to um, the Episcopal Church, what they found. And, um, and then I came back to the States and began in earnest to do Latino Hispanic ministry and um, had, um, you know, have so many stories of people, both in my parish ministry and as the missioner for Latino Hispanic ministry. I'll tell you one story. Uh, I went to a church in Virginia, Falls Church, Virginia, and um, was visiting with a large group of lay people and was introducing myself and wanting to learn about who they were and what had brought them to the Episcopal Church. And this one woman um, looked at me and, and said, um, she said, when we came to this church, and she turned and she looked at her husband who was sitting next to her, and then she turned back and looked at me again. She said, when we came to this church, and she places one hand over the palm of the other hand, she stretches it out. She says, when we came to this church, they gave us a book. And her eyes teared up. Now, what we're saying, <laughs> what's a big deal? They gave you a book. Well, for a lot of former Roman Catholics in Latin America, having a missal or a book or a service sheet is practically unknown. You know, you go to church, you're taught, I mean, the, the service hasn't changed in, you know, 100 years. Uh, you, you know, you, you memorize the responses. You don't have a book. You simply make the responses that you know. Or you just stand there and just listen. In fact, we have an expression in Mexico, in, I mean, in Latin America, that uh, in Spanish, that um, says, um, fui a oír misa. I went to listen to mass. Mm -hmm. okay. um, and so people are, have grown up in a way being spectators. So the fact that this woman and her husband came into the church and she was handed a book was, was pivotal. She was saying, I was being invited to participate in the liturgy. She was saying, I was being told that I have a mind and an intelligence. Did you know that the first issue of The Living Church magazine came out in 1878? It invited a small group of Midwestern American readers to be active, informed Christians, influencing their local communities and encouraging the highest possible standards in church teaching, preaching, music, art. If you're not a subscriber, consider it. Subscription rates start at $9.95 a year for digital and about $5 an issue for a traditional magazine. You can subscribe for our next issue at livingchurch.org and just click the subscribe tab. This sounds like, in the very best uh, sense, um, uh, em empowerment. She's she's being given this power of 
participation, of active participation in worship in a way that she hadn't previously had for various reasons. Exactly. Exactly. And this is the story that I hear across the church from, you know, rather relatively new Episcopalians, Latino Episcopalians. Um, in so many words, I mean, so many different stories, so many different, uh, um, you know, situations where there is empowerment. I'll tell you another quick story, and I know that you have other questions for me, but in my own parish in um, Oxnard, California, at All Saints, uh, one Sunday, well, it, was, it was a small ministry. We were just getting started, and um, things were fairly informal. And so every Sunday, we, would, um, we just kind of looked around the you know, 20 or 30 people that were there and said, you know, would ask, would anybody like to come up and read the scripture today? And one Sunday, we did that, and this man raised his hand. He had been coming for a while, a very quiet uh, man and a um, very simple man. And he came up to the, to the lectern, and I went up there and sort of pointed to where the lesson was. And um, he began to read. It was torture. He could barely read. He was reading in Spanish very slowly. I mean, he was, he was trying to pronounce the words out. And people would look kind of at me like, you know, like this is going to take forever. And I was thinking, oh, my God. Um, when this man finished reading the scripture, he turned around and looked at me. And he was beaming, beaming with pride. It chokes me up. Wow. And he went back and he sat down. And at the end of the service, he grabbed my hands at the door, thanked me for the invitation, for the ability to read, and said, I've never read in public before. He said, I've never been asked in the other church to read. And uh, when he moved his last Sunday, he cried on my shoulder and he said, he was moving about, uh, oh, I don't know, 100, 100 miles or so. He said, if I could drive down here every Sunday, I would. He said, I've never had a church home that welcomed me like this place did. Hmm. That is, in that's incredible. That's, that's very profound. Um, it's very profound on several levels, but, um, one level that I'm thinking of is um, just the the word liturgy, meaning the work of the people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, I when he thanked me for inviting him, uh, I mean, I I was sort of converted from those words because I thought and as and convicted, <laughs> uh, I thought, you know, when I make an invitation like that, I mean, if I really mean it. I really am inviting whoever. I mean, and, and the fact is, when I asked, would anybody like, he just raised his hand and he got up and walked out of his pew and came up. It was like an altar call. That's amazing. That's <laughs> amazing. I mean, I'm now I'm thinking too of, of the success of some Pentecostal movements too um, in Latin culture. And uh, I grew up Pentecostal, you know, listeners by now, if they don't know that, they haven't been listening for very long. Um, and so that's, that's exactly what it reminds me of as well is this kind of, um, liberation, this freedom 
that many people discover in um, Pentecostal worship if they've never been exposed to it before. It scares some people, but some people feel very liberated by it. And part of this is the ability to improvise, uh, the ability to sort of the the playing field is level. Everybody can participate. Um, Education is great, but it's not the most important thing that we're bringing to the table. Competency, technical competency is great, but it's not the most important thing we're bringing to the table. The most important thing is being a soul before God, and everyone is completely equal in this regard. Um, and we're expected to respond uh, spontaneously to him uh, and in his presence. So it, it reminds me of, of an altar call as well. Mm-hmm. And that is why, and you've hit on something that's really important. Um, one of the reasons I believe that Pentecostalism is so prevalent, I mean, it's grown so rapidly amongst Latinos, is because of that. Because people go to, the, to those churches and they are, they're valued, they are invited, they're given a ministry, uh, they're made to feel like there's somebody. Latinos are, are very deeply spiritual and have grown up, and, and they're not ashamed of that spirituality. Um, it's very common. I mean, people people grew up in their, in, in their homes. There's hardly a child in, in, in many uh, Latino families that um, doesn't get blessed by one or the other of the parents or an older sibling or an older um, member of the family who will come into the room and bless them, you know, before going to sleep uh, and who will bless them before they leave the house on a journey or to school. Um, um, who will, you know, who will say some sort of grace at table and always cognizant of God's presence in their life. It sounds like there's already in in the home that you described, um, it sounds like there's already an understanding of maybe we could say the priesthood of all believers, that that it sounds like parents and siblings and family members are are um acting out priestly roles uh among themselves of blessing and of grace and of prayers of protection and sort of um this is already if this is already active in a household and active in the imagination, um, that could be really difficult to be in a church context where a level, a certain level of participation is not welcome. Um, I'm wondering, you know, that, that seems to strike me as well. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that's true. When a Latino shows up at a, at a traditional white <laughs> uh, congregation, you know, they would, probably not feel very welcomed. You know, um, I remember, again, in my parish at All, at All Saints, um, seeing the altar guild get very uh, irritated when they would see, um, you know, children at the, at the font at the door where, um, you know, a, maybe a 10-year-old child is helping their three-year-old, you know, um, sibling uh, to put their dip their finger into the water and bless themselves. Um, the altar guild saw that as, you know, children playing with water. 
but the children were doing what they were taught to do and they were helping each other. You know, they may have not understood the meaning of it, but they knew that when they went into the church, that they put their finger in the water and they make the sign of the cross and they bless themselves, you know, or they, or, or the older child would, would dip their finger in the water and bless the, the little child, you know, or whatever. But, um, so if, if the, if the, um, when the Anglo culture has that, that contact, you know, that, um, that interaction in a lot of places I've seen where, um, well-intentioned people would make a comment or do some sort of action that would tell them that what they're doing is wrong. And, um, and that would probably, you know, tell the, the, the Latino family that they're not welcome, that they're really not welcome there. And I'm glad you brought that up for, um, a couple of reasons. One reason is that, you know, we, you and I are both aware, and I think, you know, our listeners are also aware that um, the the problems that we have as a church and as Christians of um, preventing people from coming to Christ or welcoming them to come to Christ is not restricted to a denomination or to a tradition. So, you know, it's not the Catholic's fault. Uh, it's It's not... The Baptist's fault. It's not. We all have some part in in the blame, and wherever we end up uh, denominationally, there will be a conflict and tension. Not only as individuals, you know, butting heads with the sins of other individuals, but um, if I'm Latina and I'm coming into a church that's composed mostly of white folks that's, that's that aren't people who are coming from where I'm coming from, there's also going to be some tension there. Um, so the second reason I'm glad you brought this up is, is that's just another big question I have is where is there tension or difficulty in being Latino and Episcopalian? Where do you find, you know, personal tensions or where does it, where do you see tension happening in ministry or in outreach? Well, <laughs> tension is, you know, a natural occurrence and, um, it happens in lots of different ways. Um, sometimes, you know, very painful, you know, ways. It often happens when there is a lack of cultural awareness. And I learned that in my parish, uh, I learned it in lots of different places, but I really learned it at All Saints in Oxnard, where, when we began to reach out to the Latino uh, community, and it had not occurred to me that the parishioners at the church, you know, the vestry was really gung-ho about this, but we really had not prepared the parish for the arrival of Latinos. We didn't talk about it. I mean, there was excitement that, you know, we were doing something new and that, you know, the church was going to have we're going to have children and that, you know, there was going to be, you know, there was, there was all sorts of excitement about growth. Again, in the parish, um, we um, held an annual rummage sale in the, in the fall, uh, which was our big fundraiser. And um, the uh, vestry, um, you know, year after year would, would say to me, you know, we need to get the Latinos involved with it. And over year, over the years, you know, we began to get them involved in the, in the uh, in the rum cell, they were very happy to come and help. Like the day before, two days before, to 
you know, to gather the stuff, to sort things out. They love sorting everything out and pricing things. Uh, they were great helpers in uh, when the sale came, but they didn't understand all those meetings that that they had. Um, they they were bored. They sat there. Um, they didn't understand all the why there were so many. Why there had to just why it was so complicated. And one year um, after um, after a very stressful but successful uh, rummage sale. The a group of Latinos came up to me the next Sunday and said, you know, we would like to run the rummage cell next year. They said, but we'll do it our way. And I said, okay. <laughs> what, I does said, I will, what does that mean? I said, okay. I said, I will, I will pass the word. So I told the vestry and they said, what does that mean? I go, I'm not really sure, but all I know is that they say less meetings. And they said, okay. I mean, I don't know when they met, but I never really saw an official meeting. But when the time came for the event, it ran very smoothly. It was extremely successful. Um, uh, and now the sort of the shoe was on the other foot. And so now it was the sort of the, the white uh, members of the congregations that were kind of the helpers for the, the the Latino event, which it became after that. It was so successful. And they said, you know, we didn't have all these meetings to do. They were so thankful. They said, you know, let them do it. I'll ask you, a, I'll make a final comment and then ask you a final question. One thing that I, I brought up in my interview with Esau McCauley back in the spring, um, one of the ideas that sparked um, my interview with him is this a statistic, I don't know the the exact number, but it is in a certain handful of years, it's just not going to be very long until the United States is no longer majority white. Um, and so even a notion like, um, as a white person, I will be intentional about sharing my leadership with people that aren't white, there may come a day very soon where um, I'm hoping someone's going to share their leadership with me. And so it strikes me that um, the kind of script that that the U.S. has functioned on for a long time, and a lot of white people have sort of functioned on the mental script of um, reaching out a hand to and taking the initiative to help those that aren't white or to give them uh, shared leadership. And these things are very important. And taking and understanding uh, my own role in blocking those things from happening for people of color are very important. But there will come a day when it's possible that I'll be in the minority um, and those scripts will have flipped on their own. And so it's no longer up to me to find creative ways to, to flip that script. And I find that really interesting and think that, that just God can be up to a lot in all of that um, in his church as well as in society. So my final question uh, for you, Anthony, is what would you say is the number one blessing that Latino culture can bring to the stage in in the church with the pandemic and all the questions we're asking, the decisions that are being made? I asked Bishop Carol Gallagher and Michael Smith about this with Native American communities, and they said, oh, a sense of humor. <laughs> we just need a sense of humor, and this is what indigenous people can bring to the table. So when Latinos have a voice at the table, what is the number one blessing that we get? Oh, my goodness. 
<clears throat> the number one, um, as you're beginning to ask the question, my mind was going all over the place. And um, because I think there's just so many elements, I, I don't know if there's a like a number one. Uh, what we bring is a, a deep sense of spirituality. Um, we bring extended family. Uh, we bring uh, youthfulness. We bring children. We bring joy and celebration and wonder. We bring vitality. We bring um, a, a can-do attitude, spontaneity, color, rhythm, music, food, taste, flavor. I don't know what else, but a lot. I mean, that sounds like a birthday party. <laughs> well, you know, now that you mention it, I guess if there is a word, that, if there is one word, it would be a sense of fiesta. Mm. I, I would say that Latinos bring a sense of fiesta to the church and, and they bring that to worship. It's that sense of fiesta. You know, we just open, you know, we just open the door. You know, I, we, when, I was, when I lived in Mexico, it was very common for people to drop in late at night just to say hello. And, um, and there was a common expression that I would hear when I would go to someone's house at 9 or 10 o'clock at night to say hello or when somebody dropped in at my house. And that was, you know, you, you always apologize for dropping in late. And the response was always, no te preocupes, solamente le echamos agua a los frijoles. Yeah. Yeah, add more water to the beans. Absolutely. <laughs> Latinos are coming to your church and kids are playing in the and kids are playing in the uh the font uh and people are coming in late to the service or whatever. Just add more water to the beans. It's going to be great. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Canon Anthony Guillen, thank you so much for joining us today and and giving us this peek, this really rich uh, look into your ministry and what God is up to in his church. Thank you so much. I have thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. The questions have been marvelous. Thanks for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. If you'd like to support this podcast so we can continue to make these episodes, you can find a link for giving in the show notes. Look for more coming soon on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, on our website, livingchurch.org, or on our award-winning blog, Covenant, at livingchurch.org forward slash covenant. As always, I'm your host, Amber Noel, and I've been glad to be with you. Peace. Peace.